Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian. I'm Ryan Gibson. And we're here with Karen Moncrief, the director, actor, writer, producer. You've done it all. Yeah, I don't count actor as one of the things that I do anymore. So that'd be like at the end of the list. But yes, definitely. Well, writer, you better director. tell your old friend Johnny Wikipedia because. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, Johnny. Johnny. Talk to us about your 1985 appearance in Guiding Light. Oh, yeah. Well, that was. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, my God. I'm not an actress. I told you people I'm not uh, talking about Well, that. actors don't appear in the 1985 year of Guiding Light. So, I mean, they Neither do. Neither did I, so. weirdly. That was my first gig right out of college. I went to Northwestern and. You, you wait, you're a Big Ten? You're a Big Ten? Uh, uh, we were, I guess we were in the Big Ten. We were, were like the, the sad, like, little brother of the Big Ten. Because, yes. Like, at the time, the we never, ever up. won anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are no sad people in the Big Ten. Stop it. So are you a Chicago person? Uh, no, I grew up in Michigan, actually, oh. a suburb of Detroit. Which yeah. one? Rochester. Now, now oh. it's, again, in an attempt to sound fancier. Now I guess it's Rochester Hills. But at the time, it was just Rochester. Did they build hills there? And then they, <laughs> no, it was always kind they of, installed hills. There already were hills. They were just acknowledging the hills later on, I guess, because I think they thought like Beverly Hills, Rochester Hills. It just made oh. it sound that Well, much. it's like, it's, it's because of Bloomfield that's Hills, right? right that that's, too. That's the, yeah. Okay. Wait. So who's from Michigan? Both my parents are from Detroit or from that area. Yeah. Oh, did and, somebody and go to Cranbrook? a lot of family. Bloomfield Hills, Cranbrook. Did you guys? No, my go? buddy went to, would, lived in Bloomfield Hills. One of my NYU film cronies is from Bloomfield Hills. But yeah. I just know, I know it's the sort of like the. That's like very said, Tony. The Beverly Hills, the Tony. Yeah. Like the. Oh, I lived that- in a condo with a single mom in the like sort of, actually first we were in the much lower rent part of Rochester and then um, sort of midway through middle school, I guess we moved to the slightly better. So I changed schools to the sort of better side of town. Yeah. I was not in the super fancy section. So no. <laughs> that sounds like an indie film right there. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. It did Rochester rise to some of my, uh, you know, Rochester I guess my first Heights. movie. <laughs> she's dealing meth with the single mom, but she's got big dreams to one day be, wait, Miss Illinois. Oh, Holy crap. <laughs> you guys did your homework. Is that on Wikipedia too? We I think tried. so. We tried. It is. It is. It is. Oh, crap. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, okay. So let me just say, when I was growing up in Michigan without any connections to the business, you know, I had, my dad worked for a bank before he dropped out and made candles and grew pot what? before it was fancy. Wait and a second. Wow. My- <laughs> Hold on. Stop. <laughs> no, stop. Okay, stop. Pause. Hold stop. You're saying Pause. your father worked at a bank. You're, you were, he worked at a bank at like management level guy or, or. I don't actually, I don't actually know. So, so I, I grew up mostly with my mom. And so, so my parents got divorced again, like the making of a, of a, an artist right here, but my parents got divorced when I was, I guess, nine. And, and it was all your fault, right? 
It was all my fault. Uh, exactly. It's no. That's the making of an artist. It's all my fault. It's all yeah. my fault. Right. You drove a wedge between them. Yeah. No. 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 But I, it's funny. I do recall like going back to our our house with my mom to like collect some stuff. My mom and my sister. And I remember my mom saying like she showed me this card that had been on the counter with like one of those silhouette at sunset sort of pictures. And it was signed by someone named Karen. And she said, did you send your dad this card? And I'm like, mm, no, I don't know what you're talking And my stepmom, all these years later, is named Karen. So let me just say. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <right>? Evidence. Oh. <laughs> the evidence. Yeah. So, so anyway, I- no. But my dad had worked for, you know, the auto industry. My mom worked for Chevrolet. So that's, you know, I didn't know how you got it. I always wanted to perform. I, at the time I was really into singing. So it was like musical theater was my thing. And if you're in Michigan, that's the only theater you know about, you know, chorus line comes into town or, you know, right. Uh, I don't remember right. what that's, else. That's culture even. is pop culture. Yeah. 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 And, and so I didn't know, for instance, that a woman could be a director. All I knew is that women could be actors. When I was thinking about college, there was this special, and I don't know how old you guys are, but like there was this special which had a whole bunch of Northwestern alums like Charlton Heston and Anne Margaret, you know? And nice. I was like, oh, wow, look at all these people who went to Northwestern. So that was literally the only school I applied to. That, and I think that like, Michigan State because that's where my mom went. Like that, those were the two that Spartans. I went to. Yeah. So yeah, wanted to get out of Michigan, and so the pageants were away. That was a long-winded way of saying, you know, well, yeah, but you I were a carpetbagger. You're Miss Illinois. You couldn't hack Miss Michigan, so you moved. Yeah, what's up with that? The yeah. Borders, but... So what's up with that was I was, or was third when you went runner to up for Miss Michigan. And like thought my pageant days were over. That like, was when I was like a junior in high school. I'm going to another division. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was divisions. not even on my radar, I'd like to say. <laughs> and I was at Northwestern and I performed in a play and they were just starting the Miss Northwestern pageant. This stuff is so embarrassing. I can't even believe that. Come I'm, on, like, do about it. This. But yes. Origin story. Yeah. Origin. So they started the Miss Northwestern pageant and it was like run, it was, a fraternity was sponsoring it. There oh, she is, Miss Northwestern <laughs> lady. And they it. were giving scholarship money, like real money. Like, and I was putting myself through college. So I had, you know, work, study, job, lots of grants. So it was very practical. So you, the, the winning of Miss Northwestern actually helped you pay for college. Like all kidding. It did. I, I got yeah, $4,000 of scholarship money, like two for... I think Miss Northwestern and four for Miss Illinois. So yeah, it did. Like it was real money. That's four minutes in today's college. You could go to exactly. college for four minutes uh, on that. No, in those two days. years. Yeah. Two yeah, years yeah. back you then. You could go to intro to, all right, get out. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Uh, your, your time is up, sir. Your time is up, ma'am. Just so you know, I'm dipping into the show budget. I'm on eBay. 1985 U.S. Miss Illinois, Karen Marie Moncrief with signature. Oh, Dear shit. Jim, follow your dreams and be happy. Best, Karen oh, no. Moncrief, Miss that Illinois, that 1985. Is that a lot of stupid shit? All I know is... We're buying it and sending it to Illinois Action News lost their greatest. I mean, your hair in this picture. It's good, right? It's a lot of hair. 
you look like a newscaster, like breaking stories. <laughs> so it makes sense that I would like, it's just one step from there to the soap opera, right? Because you got the hair already going <laughs> you do. on. Yeah. Yes. You yeah. look no. like the, the vixen. That's I gonna, was the vixen. Yeah. Yes. I was. I was yes. the vixen in many a show but because I was dark haired. a lost word, guys? Where's vixen when we need it? I feel like when vixen Donna Dixon left the, left the field, you don't hear vixen anymore. <laughs> Why is it weird that I type into eBay, you know, Miss Illinois photos and a lot of this is there's some undermarket of this stuff, <laughs> the dark market. Oh, my God. Karen. Do you still have your crown? Uh, I think I do. Probably packed in some box. I still have like this giant trophy. It's in the nice. basement, like, you know, gathering cobwebs. I don't know why I can't give that thing away. It, it's it's a, No, of course you're not going to give that thing away. But just so you know, like, thank you for talking about it. I know well, you said I'm not an actress or like, sure you are. I'm not a pageant queen. Sure you are. We're not trying to embarrass you. It's what we're trying to say is like. You can come from anywhere. <laughs> It, 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 God's honest truth. It. Yeah. No, I mean, really, it's like there's never been a similar story. Like everybody's yeah. story is is very unique. Take me in the mindset of what 18 year old Karen. Are you the Midwestern gal who's like, yeah, this is exciting and uh, everyone likes to be a princess? Or are you like gritting your teeth like I need the money. It's going to get me where I need to yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just play along whatever, smile and say cheese. Yeah. I think honestly, when, when I was doing the pageant stuff, I saw it as hopefully a, a means to an end, like a way to, you know, get noticed or get ahead. Cause I really didn't know how you did that. Like, how did a person, how did you get an agent? How did you like, I knew you needed one, but how, how do you bridge that gap from, you know, Rochester, Michigan to, Hollywood, which is where I thought I wanted to be as an actress at the time. And I honestly, like me at the time, I, I had a serious people pleasing gene. You know, I, I learned it. It served me well. It was a good sort of strategy for a lot of stuff. I was just like, uh, you know, you would have called me a serious brown noser when I was a kid. You know, I, I just straight A's, like super straight. Like I'm still, frankly, super straight about a bunch of stuff. Like I'm still one of a few people I know that's never, ever used drugs of any kind. Like I have a super, my dad was growing pot and I like never used drugs, you know, it's sort of like that. And so I did what I needed to do in a certain way. And I said what I thought I had to say. And I, I saw the game, I saw what it was, but I think I also like, I really did believe in some of that stuff, like goal setting and believe in your dreams and whatever. And things were a little bit like if you work really, really hard and so you can get somewhere. And I think I really, when I was much, much younger, I believed that that's all it was, that like people who worked hard would get ahead. Now, of course, I see that to do anything, to do any of the things that I have been fortunate enough to have done, you have to have, yes, you need to be a super hard worker. Yes, you need to be smart. Yes, you need to be talented, but you need to be really fucking lucky. And I, I think, and I think I always kind of have been, but at the time, I don't think I exactly wanted to acknowledge that. I wanted it all to be 
It's all my can-do spirit, my Midwestern can-do spirit sort of thing. So you're saying the fact that Miss Wisconsin fell down the stairs backstage was completely <laughs> just good <laughs> luck to for the you? Leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. I think, though, that with all with other guests that we've had on, though, I would say that it's everyone says that there's some there's a bit of luck involved in all of it, but I, I think you can say that and you can say that you were very lucky and we're and and to, to make it, I think in anything, there has to be a bit of luck, but also you have to be right place, right time and be prepared for it. You know, you could say, I mean, look, you went to, you were smart enough. And if anyone knows the admission process to getting into Northwestern, you got into Northwestern. So it was you had to be, then. you had, but yeah, but still it wasn't that easy. I yeah, mean, no, it's still, so, yeah. yeah. So you were applied and then you also, you know, you said another thing, which uh, I have other friends who come from the same environment where their parents were big potheads or whatever. And they swore off drugs because they saw what it did to their parents. And so you didn't take drugs. So yeah, there was, everyone has luck involved. It's timing and preparation. Yeah, you have too. to be prepared I mean, for everything that you we do. We all get a little bit of luck. It's what you do with it, right? Yeah, no, a thousand percent, a thousand percent. Um, but you also you asked you asked something about like I, the question under the question to me felt like is that who I was? And the fact is, up and through like turning thirty, like because that was my whole acting career span that time. Like, you know, contract roles on soaps was mostly what I did. And then I did, you know, smattering of some like crappy B movies and TV stuff. Yeah. But you were a working actor. No, I was, but I always felt like, and the pageant was the same, like that this was all of that stuff was about this veneer of polish. And I wanted to like expose something about my soul. Like I wanted to, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to like really do work I cared about. And the fact is my work on the soap, while I'm proud of some of it, you know, and I learned a lot about, you know, how to work quickly and make choices and all that. And whatever I did in the pageant, I can't say I'm terribly proud of much of that. Honestly, there's, it's just, it's a thing I did and I learned from it or whatever. It never felt like this is me. And I remember a lot of people, I think, probably have, you know, they change what they're doing. They have some crisis point. And for me, I'm married for the second time and I had been married and it was the year that I got divorced. And I remember feeling, I was 29 at the time, and feeling, you know, in that marriage, like I was... Like I had everything, but I felt like I was suffocating. And like, if I died the next day, I would be going to the grave empty handed. Like I would have squandered all of what I had to share with the world and my true work would have been left undone is how I felt, which is so sad when I think about it now. But luckily, you know, I weaseled my way out of that marriage, um, which, you know, I could have done that better too, but I got, I got to the point where like my heart was cracked open, you know, and however that comes about in this case, it was, I was, you know, newly divorced. I had just reconnected with the person who's now my husband and this was post-divorce. And <laughs> it's always sad when people know you better than you know yourself. Apparently he ran into a friend of mine who's also an actress and she said she'd just run into me and he literally looked at his watch and said, hmm, she's probably getting divorced right about now. 
Oh my God. <laughs> and, oh, that's my husband. I love him so much. Yeah. Cause he, he knew that it was not, you know, it was not the right that's match for me. Did you get married early? I got, it only lasted like two years, but I, I met him my last year of Northwestern, but he was like a completely different kind of animal than I, like, I wanted this deep creative life and I wanted to be, and I was living this. And he like, was he, a general contractor from the West Side? No, 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 no. He was You're a smart chick from Goldman Northwestern. Sachs. No, no, wow. no. Okay. No, a different thing entirely. Oh, I wanted like a Chicago guy to score like no, a beauty queen No, here. no, no, an L.A. No? guy. No, oh, no, it gosh. wasn't any of that. It wasn't exactly what you think. But the thing is, <laughs> I was so... Like in that time. No, like, it's exactly what I think. Beauty queen marries Goldman Sachs yeah, guy. I, right. I've heard that story. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so, and I didn't want to be that. I didn't right. want to go to those dinners and do it. Like I didn't want to be that person. You walked into the gilded cage and you're like, wait a second. Holy shit, I'm in a gilded cage. This I don't is not want my this. beautiful house. This is not my beautiful husband. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, it, wow. and it all was. And then I unraveled it. So... In the unraveling, I like signed up for a poetry workshop. I started taking extension classes. I, because I knew all about acting, but at this point, I had worked under enough like dipshit B movie directors to go, and I'd, I would hang around the camera and I would watch hey, I what take was that happening. Personally. Wait, do you? Are you a dipshit? <laughs> do you like throw actors up without harnesses to do their own stunts really stupidly oh, in the absolutely. rain? Do you? Oh, my no, no, no. God. I'm I've saying had... serious dipshits. <laughs> I need to see pathos in your face, no pets, <laughs> and rolling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't know the word pathos, the people yeah. I work with. So that would be like really, uh, yeah. No. Hey, everyone. Before we go any further, I just wanted to say that some of our favorite movies here are comedies. There's another show from Next Chapter Podcast that we think you might like called Midnight Public Radio. Created by the Washington, D.C. comedy troupe, the Midnight Gardeners League, Midnight Public Radio is a podcast for everyone who has a love-hate relationship with NPR. Sick and tired of all those horrifyingly depressing reports on climate change and boring human interest pieces on the guy who invented the ceiling fan? Like This American Life on Acid, Midnight Public Radio takes the world of stuffy intellectual broadcasting and shoves it through a gonzo meat grinder of semi-improvised sketches covering different aspects of our world. Featuring absurd characters and segments about things like illegal caterpillar racing, death conventions, and a riot at an old folks home, this is a show for everyone who's ever thought all things considered has a stick up its ass. War. Sports. The culinary arts. MPR has it all. Listen to Midnight Public Radio wherever you get your podcasts or go to midnightgardenerscomedy.com to learn more. Now back to the show. I feel like we're transitioning here, so I have to, I want to ask this. So before, was there a time when you were like, it sounded like you started preparing yourself for... I've been around enough of these people that I know I can do this like, and I can do it much better. And I can also relate to talent because I have been talent, but was there a thought in your head that you were like, I want to do more as an actor or I, were you, did you feel pigeonholed as an actor? Like, did you, were you like, I want bigger roles. I wanted to do bigger things, but I want to transition into being behind the camera and directing. 
Well, what's funny about what you said is that's exactly what a dude would say. And unfortunately, <laughs> no, and I, I don't mean that in a mean way. I don't. But it, I've not, talked not, to a lot taken. of my like female filmmaker friends that, and hopefully in this next generation, they won't be like me. But it for me, it wasn't like, oh, I could do this. I, I know everything I need to know. I can do it. It was the opposite of that. It's like, I know I have something in me. I know I want to do this. I've always been a writer. Like I was, you know, my earliest, earliest thing before even I found acting, I went to all these young authors conferences and when I was younger and that I loved writing. And that's sort of, that was my happy place. Like auditioning, caused me so much angst because I'm essentially an anxious person. So it literally got to the point where an audition, like the sides for an audition would come in through my fax machine because that's what we had back then. And I would like, I'd start hyperventilating and want to cry. Like I just so don't want to act anymore. So, so anyway, sorry, I'm a talker too. So for me, it was like, no, I need to learn everything before I can hold myself up and say, I no, I can do this. And so I went to, so my way of doing that, because I didn't have deep pockets, was to go to LACC film school for 12 bucks a unit at the time. So this was, I was, um, let's see, I was 29 or 30, maybe I was 30 by the time I actually went. I'm 58 now. So you can do the math. That's like, what, 28 years ago. And at the time, the, some of the teachers there were also teaching at USC and UCLA and it was a good program. The directing class wasn't worth shit, but like I learned all I needed to learn in the cinematography program and the editing. I got a basic knowledge and I made a couple short films and I started working on Blue Car, which became the film that I was my directorial debut. Yeah. So I started doing that stuff then. I, actually, because I felt like I needed to be able to do all of it. And really, you know, I didn't just want to be one of those directors who could only talk to actors, which is kind of funny because all of my career, I'd never had any director ever talk to me the way I talk to my actors. Like none of them seemed to know what to say to an actor. They all, I literally heard one of the director's and definitely the assistant director on one of those B movies called the actors meat puppets. So it was like, it was truly like that, which was what I was coming out of. But I knew I knew how to work with actors and talk to actors, but I really wanted to be able to direct the camera and make those kinds of choices to, you know, really be the author of, you know, a film that I was making. It might've come across as a dude question, but that's what I was basically trying to say. No, 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 no. I didn't mean to say you're a dude for asking the question. I meant to say, like, I've seen that a lot of guys when they're new directors feel like they know everything and they're ready to go and bullshit their way through. And they, and because they just get along on just sheer chutzpah and, and believe they can do it because probably they're socialized to believe they can do it. Women, especially of my generation, weren't as much. So it's like, I swear to you, my husband laughs at me, but like my first three movies, I dragged around books like about how to do it. Like, cause I, and he's like, you know how to do it. I'm like, I don't know if I know. I like, I don't know. Every time I wrote a, went to start a new screenplay, I would like read all the screenplay books again. Cause I felt like I still didn't, like, I always felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Always felt like 
God, I, I don't have a right to do this. So, I, and I want to say that in case anybody listening feels that way, especially, <laughs> especially if you're a chick, that I feel like sometimes women are socialized to like, to be nice, to be the helper people, to not be the center of attention, to not be, obviously that particular thing wasn't my issue, but Unless it's the center of the male gaze. Exactly. As an actress. But if you are, yeah. But if you're going to be directing the male gaze, telling, you know, in my case, it's always been a a male cinematographer where to gaze and telling everybody else what to do. It's, you know, sometimes you get a bit of pushback (laughs) as you may have heard. (laughs) So, wow. Okay. So that, that's pretty fast. I would say, there's definitely chapters in your life, but it seemed like you, and by the way, I did a similar thing. I mean, I think we're both Gen X and yes, I got the house in the suburbs and the white picket fence. And I was like, wait a second. I spent my whole childhood getting out of the suburbs. What did I do wrong here? Mm. You know? So Mm. you followed through on what was defined as the American dream by the baby boomers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you went, well, this isn't mine. This is not my dream. Yeah. Yeah. I played your game and I guess I won it, but it doesn't feel like a win. Yeah. And you sound happier now. (laughs) Oh my God. I feel like I would never have, there's so much that I, I just, I was a completely different person and really there was so much that I didn't know about the world because I kind of funneled myself I was kind of fearful. Like I I left college and honestly, it sounds terrible because it sounds like I maybe used him and maybe he just felt safe. And he was sort of like, Hey, and I'm from LA. And after my six month stint in the training program at Goldman in New York, we'll move to LA and everything was sort of settled and it seemed easy. And then when I started kind of saying, okay, here I am now, but what do I actually want? It was messier than that also. It wasn't as directed as what do I want? It was like, I kind of had to explode the house before I could move out of it. So it was a little like that, to be honest. But that's a 30-year-old, like not not knowing how to have a direct path. Yeah. And, like and a you, graceful you just, exit. I, I definitely right. was not graceful. And, I, and it, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get out of that gracefully. But yeah, I'm so happy that, I mean, this sounds terrible, but that I did because, and I, Again, not to be all about the dudes in my life or anything, but my husband now, Eric, has been like he was my creative partner on my first three movies. And and by that I mean like, you know, he's the most brilliant editor ever. And and he's also the person going way back who said to me when I was coming right out of that education and B movies. And that those were the years I'm sure you remember Alex of the erotic thriller. And that's the kind of stuff that I had like that I would get thrown into or whatever. And so when I started writing, I started writing with a male protagonist and something that I thought I could get made. And the funny thing was the very first thing that I wrote was the very, very first thing that I wrote was this erotic thriller. I'm sure it was horrible, but like the producer of it, uh, it was the second time I'd worked with this guy, basically said on the phone, well, we don't have a script, but this is essentially what we're going to do. Are you in? And I'm like, sure. And so you don't have a script. Um, How about if I write it? And I literally wrote the script in like a week. 
and sent it to him. And he's like, okay, we'll make it. And I didn't get paid. Like, I don't know. We got paid like some tiny amount for that, but you know, it was the first thing. So after that, like, that's what I kind of thought, okay, well I could do that. And my husband said to me, he was not my husband at the time, but he just said to me, well, first of all, how about if you write a movie you actually want to see? Because the kinds of movies I wanted to see and had been seeing were all the art house, the amazing art house movies of the time. And he said, and also, by the way, you know, it doesn't have to be a male protagonist. (laughs) This was a revelation to me. I mean, I know I sound like I was just a complete idiot with blinders on, but I guess I was, honestly. I felt like, well, the only things I see in the American cinema that I was going to, except for some indie movies that I started, that started to open up my world, were the more the male gaze, absolutely the male gaze. And I was always interested in exploring like female sexuality and desire and all those sorts of themes. But like my very first attempts were through the male gaze because that's what I had modeled for me all around. And so it was, you know, sort of a revolutionary idea that I would put a woman at the center of my stories. And so, yeah. And, and he just kind of kept pushing me that way. He, at the time, his day job was as a, a reader for William Morris when it was William Morris and not WME, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is where I am now, which is kind of funny. And so he'd read a lot, a lot, a lot of scripts and he, yeah, he, he gave me good advice. So <laughs> I know the erotic thriller category. Well, one of my first jobs was as a PA on, uh, do you remember the Emmanuel mm-hmm. films? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there was a company. So I can't say the word erotic without saying it like my old boss because he was French. So he called it erotic. Which sounds way and, better. Uh, let's just face it. Ero- erotic. <laughs> they are, they are, it is not pornography. It is erotic. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is for Cinemax and for legitimate distribution. <laughs> Believe um, me, I mucked around with those guys so much <laughs> earlier in, in my acting career. I, I know those people and it's all about but the movie they, sold yeah, before it ever even exactly, gets made. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, the poster. So and yeah. and so it's funny that you said that. I was just watching um, John Hamm on Howard Stern. Mm. And I think he might have worked for the same porn producer because he was, or, you know, excuse me, erotic <laughs> producer, because he was talking about it was a downtown warehouse in a very bad neighborhood. And we would just rattle them off in like two weeks. And, but the good news is it was almost like the old Roger Corman model. Yeah, it was yeah. all people in their twenties, yeah. big dreams, getting to shoot a feature for their first time. Yeah. And everybody had a fake name. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah Cause yeah. you wanted to, you know, the DP was like, yeah, I'm shooting a feature, you know, on film. And then be like, Oh, well, why aren't you putting your name? Oh no, I'm, I'm Buck Dallas on this one. I'm not, I'm not putting my name on this. Yeah. You know, Emmanuel goes to space is not going on my reel. Not, right. not on, never on Cinemax though. I never saw that one on Cinemax. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And that's a whole nother episode, which is the guy's name was Alan Saritsky. And he was one of those benefactors. That was also a weird chapter shift in my life, but one of those bigger than life characters that you meet along the way, especially coming up because they're kind of not around anymore. I feel like our business went from really crazy iconoclastic personalities. And now that it's so corporate and digital that those people are weeded out yeah, and I miss yeah. them. I did a couple of movies you know? from Menachem Golan. So I totally know there what you you're go. talking about. <laughs> totally. And by the way, another Hollywood analogy, like, 
whatever we meet you at in this business, that's your box. Stay there. That's right. right? Think about that. Yeah. No. It's a cultural it's so thing. True. It's a it's a human yeah. thing. Like you're yeah. always going to be this. Just make us more of that shit. I mean, like when I worked for the erotic producer, Emmanuel guy. Yeah. Make more. Yeah. And so I started as a PA on this, you know, the topless sets. And within a week, I was running his development department. And he said, Get me out of the erotic business. I want to do oh. straight stuff. Uh, which is a good segue to my actual. So, my producer yeah. of my very first movie, Blue Car. And if you wait a second, when you're, I say you're, producer, you keep trying to get out of my soap opera. Bear trap. Oh, and you, you won't. won't. Okay, okay. And I have to say, well, I'm just going to tell you one thing, and we can come yes, back to it. Just yes, put a pin yes. in it. That that if you look up the financier producer of Blue Car, my first movie, I met him on the set of a you know straight to video kids movie. But he, you know his big claim to fame was doing Colette, which nice. was yes. Danny Houston's yep. uh, directorial yep. debut, yep. but also softcore. Oh, same yeah. stuff. Same stuff you're talking. Well, about. look, you know the thing is, is people under a certain age will not relate. Like movies used to be mainstream movies and, you know, not so mainstream movies, but not porns, you know, R-rated movies used to be sexier because that's all we had. We didn't have ubiquitous porn, right? you know, I feel like, and and by the way, and when we talk about the piano, I mean, sexy movie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, We never, I don't, and and it's just not, I feel like we've lost, we've gained a lot of cultural maturity in our pop culture, we've lost sexual maturity. I feel like we're mm. more conservative now mm. in just in terms of pure, just like sensuality than mm. the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for sure. and it may yeah. be because porn's everywhere and you kind of get that, uh, you know, out of your system, or it could be that we're afraid of offending, you know, based on this or that or the other, but it's just an interesting, you know, there used to be like sex comedies and sex thrillers. And, you know, I mean, like, where's a basic instinct now? I don't know. Anyway, that's a separate tangent. All I want to know is, is the movie Soap Dish real? <laughs> oh, because I love dish. that movie. That's I... my guilty pleasure movie. Do we all know that movie? I don't know the movie. Uh, Robert think. Downey Jr., Sally Field. It's behind the scenes of a soap opera. Celeste Talbert had it all. You have so many people to thank. I hate her so much. Beauty, fame, love. That's a cut. But her life. Next time, could you wear a swimsuit underneath the towel? Just turned into one big soap opera. They're plotting against me every day, all day long. There's the greedy actress. I cannot be the villain forever. I'm, I'm sweet. I'm tender. I'm a victim. The sex star producer. You do want me, don't you, Dave? In the weirdest way. And you know what you have to do. I murder some homeless girl? Are you nuts? One weeked out writer. I will just say Maggie went to Tibet to visit the Dalai Lama, spiritual thing. I thought the Dalai Lama moved to L.A. Well, then some other Lama there. It doesn't matter. Fernando Lama, come on. And the most brilliant actor alive. Rod Randall comes back from Vienna. So he wasn't killed. He was maimed. The guy was decapitated. They froze the head. How am I supposed to write for a guy that doesn't have a head? All right, well, we haven't figured that out yet. Well, who plays it? Close to Maybe I should have sent a memo. Things are hard for me right now, in life and on the show, okay? Things were hard for me 20 years ago when you spat me out and left me for dead. Really good, really good movie. Uh, Honestly, another 80s movie that would never be made today. 
but I don't remember it, so oh, I can't say if it's I love real. It. I'm sorry. It's like broad, wacky is comedy. completely real. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's Tootsie's <laughs> real? No, I don't. No, it's probably not real. <laughs> I, I, it's not as it's not as fun and, you know. It's hard work. Isn't in drag, so. It's hard yeah. work, yes. Yeah. You know, my brush with greatness was when I graduated NYU, Alec Baldwin also graduated, right? And his story was... Mm. He didn't finish his degree to go work on a soap opera. So when he came, he came back as like the returning hero to actually, he finished his, it wasn't just a gimme. I think he finished his like nine credits. And so he uh, walked with us and I was standing next to him for a minute and I said, uh, soap opera, huh? He's like, dude, best acting class ever. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know. I don't know. It is to some extent. Well, learning, and then getting just, off book so and far. like reacting quickly yeah. and, you know, right. like grace under pressure and almost like a live TV um, yeah. energy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, very much so because literally you get just, one yeah. take, okay, maybe move it on. two, but they, <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's just too much material to cover in a day. So yeah. It's one of the many feeders for our business, right? You don't just walk to the front of the line. It's the erotic thrillers or slash genre filmmaking, right? I mean, there's straight up porn and that's hard to make that jump, but like erotic thrillers, cheapo Kung Fu action movies, unplugged kind of horror movies. And for, for most actors and some filmmakers, but most actors, soaps are always there. And it seems like, I mean, yes, some people get caught in the, in the golden handcuffs, but like you and many others, it's a great proving ground or stop off. But you know, like, okay, thanks. I'll take what I can get from it. I learned a lot about what, what to do, maybe more about what not to do, but a good sort of grad school for most yeah. uh, filmmakers. And, and as you said, some people do move on from it, you know, like the Julianne Moores of the world. Well, yeah, and um, Alec Baldwin. I mean, there's tons of the Alec examples. Baldwins, yeah. 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 But a lot of people do get stuck there. And your point about how people, how they see you when they first meet you, mm-hmm. that that is hard to shake. I feel like is a really good point that I really haven't thought of before or hadn't really made that clear for myself, but I think that's really true. What's our brain? It's pattern recognition, hunting, gathering machine. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if I meet you and I see you and, and you're, oh yeah, beauty queen. Like that's it. It's just easy for mm-hmm. me. Moving on. I don't need any mm-hmm. like critical thinking next, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And yeah, I mean like same thing. If you're on the cover of Soap Opera Digest, you either need to like disappear for 10 years and reemerge in like a quirky indie movie or like right. just accept right. your fate. You're absolutely right. That, that You're absolutely right. So again, like just like not winning Miss America, getting, you know, having my character go crazy and start to poison people and get written off was like also, you know, a weird blessing because this sort of <laughs> happened right before I was on the show called Santa Barbara, which is not on anymore, but it was a daytime soap much beloved and I was breaking up some super couple and man, those fans were not happy about that or about me. You know, when I got written off, it was right around this time where I was, I guess, 28, 29. And I remember my acting agent at the time was like, "Mm, well, a woman in her 30s. Because weirdly, I always played older. So even my first job 
on days of our lives was my first real contract. And I know part, and I think I was on there like a year or something also coming in as a spy, breaking up a super couple. And I literally was the mom of this actress who was three years younger than me. So like, it was ridiculous. Like I was 23 playing, you know, at least 10 or 15 years older than that. Well, it's the bone structure, you know? No, (laughs) it is. And I've met a lot of actors who the other thing happens, which is don't work really nothing till like 28. And then they Mm -hmm. just work forever. Like they're, it's like their faces want to be 35. And, right. and they just hit a groove and they're just off to the races forever. But, but at that point, my agent was lit. My acting agent was literally saying, well, a woman in her thirties, it's really tough. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> Thanks, I'm 28. <laughs> I really haven't even gotten started. What the hell? Like, where's my, you know, this is not, I don't want this to be the end of my career, you know? So Cassandra Benedict had to die no. for Karen Moncrief to live. <laughs> Exactly right. That's really right. I don't know if she did die. I think she just went crazy. I think they might have carted her off. So you're to saying like a we could cut to the institution today, and you could return for she like might a, still a star be in turn. Well, it, the reason I bring it up is you know way back in the Paleozoic era, Ryan and I made a, a short film with a lot of people, but one of them was Natalie Z from Justified, and she's done a ton of stuff. Other guys and super cool person and like was nice enough to do our stupid little film but she said the same she's like I just no one knew what to do with me until 30 and then my face was just I grew into my face or whatever so sometimes again it's that almost not immature what's the word I'm looking for simplistic like oh you look like a vixen you got dark eyes and like thick hair and you're gonna break up some marriages or whatever you know like it just like you cast now, like you're on the other side of that table or now it's, you know, tape, but. I like to think I look a little more deeply than that. You have dark hair. You are the vixen. (laughs) Like we had it, we had a, a filmmaker performer on and she said she had the same problem. She's like, look, I'm a soulful person. I got a lot of feelings. I got a lot of emotions, a lot of backstory in my life. They always made me the bad girl. It's just something about my face. You just look at it and you go, you're smoking cigarettes out beyond behind the Seven Eleven, like just, <laughs> and and that's what I mean. It's like just human nature. I don't want to say like that's the root point of like misogyny and racism, but there is something to like our dumb monkey brains. You know, like mm-hmm. they've done experiments with like newborns and very very young kids. They'll they prefer beauty. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't, you know, uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And it is why we, you know, we talk about the privilege shits. of beauty and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. This is how I got greenlit. I'm Ryan Gibson. I'm Alex Legion. We have had the pleasure of having Karen Moncrief on the show today. And she's fantastic. You and I will be astounded at what crazy directions that the conversation started out this episode and continues. In fact, we're going to make it a three-episoder because, you know, basically Karen has lived three lives. So Holiday bonus pack. Yeah. (laughs) And eventually we will talk about the piano and we talk about her film career, we talk about her TV career, we talk about acting, we talk about 
pretty much everything. So she had a lot to say and a lot of interesting gems that you guys should hear. So that's where absolutely, just in. absolutely fascinating the life she has led and continues to lead. Just uh, I mean, really appreciate her coming on. Friend of the show now, I would say. <laughs> exactly. So without further ado, join us next week for part two. And then the week after that for part three. Have a happy Thanksgiving, I guess. Right? Yeah, if when we're gonna date the sh- if we're gonna date the show, we'll say this is a have a happy have a happy holidays because yeah. we're coming to the end of the year of this and season. The end of season one. Season so, one. Many more greats lined up in the new year. We're excited. Very excited. We, and we learned you're out there. So please reach out. One of the things we wanted to start doing is having more interactivity. If you have questions for the guests, if you want to know something specific about how they broke in or how they do their job, we'll ask. Just uh, reach out. Or what about even maybe even being on the show for a little bit? Maybe you have some questions. We can yeah. Some and questions we could, we were all, yeah. We were also thinking we could, yeah. Uh, look, let's start with this. Send us some questions. Uh, we'd love to have you on. We're going to do a thing where we connect you to the actual guest for a segment. Like a, it's top secret. <laughs> so, but for right now, reach out. We're on social. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on Email. Gmail. How I got greenlit. It's all how I got greenlit on every platform. But uh, yeah, we want to hear from you. We hope uh, you're digging what we're doing. We are enjoying the hell out of it. Thanks for listening the first season. All right. Thank you. That's part one. Yep. How I got greenlit. I'm Ryan. I'm Alex. Roll them. Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.